This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Hello, and welcome to Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. Thank you for joining us. We're your hosts. My name is Marcy Davis, and my co-host is my trusty service dog, Whistle. And we're thrilled to be with you today to talk about our favorite subject, working dogs and working animals. And today, we're excited to have a guest on our show by the name of Kate Kelly. And Kate is an author, a dog lover, and even a historian. So come right back after these quick messages as we welcome Kate Kelly to the show. Sit. Stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Well, four to be exact. designerpetsweaters.com hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat beautiful couture patterns for your pets including custom-knitted formal wear casual wear yachting and even sports themed many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats top hats and a lot of sparkle each sweater includes leg loops front paw sleeves and leash opening visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today large or small we fit them all designerpetsweaters.com let's talk pets on petliferadio.com Welcome back to Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. Today we're visiting with Kate Kelly. Hello, Kate, and welcome to the show. Hi, I'm delighted to be with you, Marcy. Yeah, well, we're so excited that you could be with us, Kate. There's so many things that we want to talk to you about today. I mean, you have written over 30 nonfiction titles, ranging from organizing yourself to living safe in an unsafe world. I mean, Kate, what's your favorite thing to write about? You know, I have to say that my favorite thing to write about has ended up being the little-known stories of American history, and a lot of those involve dogs. When I tell people I write about American dogs during the summer, they kind of look at me with puzzlement, but (laughs) only by telling them the story of the first seeing-eye dog coming to this country in 1928 do they begin to understand the state of disability in this country. So actually, by looking at our stories through the prism of what's going on with our animals, it actually is extraordinarily revealing. So that's one of my favorite ways to look at it. Well, I know, and I just love your site, America Comes Alive, where you write about so many of these things. And you do, you write so much about working dogs and all different aspects of our lives historically and currently. So tell us about some of your favorite stories that you've written about. Well, one of the most searched stories is why is the Dalmatian called the firehouse dog? And it actually ties in very nicely to our idea of working dogs. I think that what we often forget is that dogs like to work. They like to have a purpose in life and they like to have an assignment just like people do. And Dalmatian dogs started out at, you know, protecting their country of Dalmatia and that sort of thing. But over time, they became 
herding dogs and sentry dogs. And then eventually they discovered that they were very good with horses. And so the royalty in Europe and England began using these dogs as carriage dogs. Now, Dalmatians are also really good-looking dogs. And so here you have these wonderful spotted dogs running alongside the carriages. And that was sort of like their job was, was going with and guiding if things got complicated or anything. So as this behavior was observed, I don't exactly know who it was, but somebody figured out this would work out really well for firehouses because when we first started fighting fires in this country, the men, you know, it was, it was a budget situation, so men would drag along, you know, a barrel of water on a, on a cart or something. Well, obviously, that became difficult as cities were settled and populations grew and that sort of thing. They needed to take more amounts of water, so it became popular for horses to pull them. But taking along the horses meant like, oh, another thing to manage. So the tradition began that the Dalmatian, at the sound of the alarm, it was the Dalmatian's job to rouse the horses, you know, get them up. Of course, the men had to get them ready to go. But the Dalmatians were also very good at leading the horses. So they would lead them in the path that they were supposed to go to the fire. They arrive at the fire. And of course, one of the biggest dangers is that there are sparks flying out of a, a burning building. And they can't afford to have the horses be injured. So the firemen would gather the horses, put them in an area away from the fire, and the Dalmatians assigned to keep the horses calm and keep circling and herding the horses to keep them in place while the men fought the fire. So that's why we don't often see real live Dalmatian dogs at firehouses anymore, but every now and then you do. But you do often see the, the symbol of the Dalmatian dog connected with firehouses. And, and I certainly think that that's a great example of a dog with a job. Oh, I love that. And I just, I am, I'm still amazed at all the different ways that dogs have helped us over the years and how we're continuing to learn about ways that they can help us. And I love your series, your Dog Days of Summer series that you do and how you talk about all these types of different dogs. So tell us more about the Dog Days of Summer series and and what you're working on. Well, the other stories that I really love, and there are countless numbers of them, is the story about our, the United States Canine Corps, because people are very surprised to know, now there were always dogs who participated in war, like there are a lot of mascot dogs that are on Civil War monuments and that sort of thing, because men would either bring along their dog, or they would adopt a dog or something, and the dog would end up kind of accompanying them. And so they were there for morale and to keep the men company and amused and that sort of thing. But they weren't a trained dog, fighting dog in any way. We go through World War I and Europe is beginning to use dogs in the military. And there are some wonderful stories. I have a, an incredible story this summer about Taki and he, T-A-K-I. And he was a Belgian sheepdog and he was the first dog they ever used to try carrying a message across a battlefield. And they'd prepared, they trained him, and they'd done everything they could. And, and what they did with him actually was they encrypted the message and they inserted it into a capsule. And Taki was trained 
trained to carry that capsule in his mouth to whatever his destination was. And they first used him in 1914, and he made it all the way through World War I with some minor injuries, but he was able to work all that time. Now, as you know, that's pretty unusual. And, and of course, the reason they had turned to dogs was because a fellow, you know, a soldier running across that same battlefield was certainly going to be taken down. But another World War I message carrying dogs that I loved was because of the whole image and also because here we add in another trained animal. And this story was in Verdun and things were going very badly and the French soldiers were trapped in Verdun and they really needed to find out what was going on, you know, behind the lines and that sort of thing. And they had a messenger dog with them and his name was Satan. We have to assume that Satan was a pretty rough, tough dog. But <laughs> Satan did not use the capsule carrying method. What Satan was set up with was, first of all, he wore a gas mask because by that time they had learned that they had to protect the animals as well. So here you have this dog in a canine gas mask, which our dogs um, in the military today use. And then they had two baskets on his back. So as he, and do you want to guess what was in the baskets? I will make I can't. you wait very long. I was going to okay. say, I can't imagine, Kate. <laughs> Carrier pigeons. Oh, my gosh. And so as <laughs> Satan goes across the battlefield, and it's a pretty broad stretch, and of course, it, by this time, they've used enough messenger dogs that, that the Germans are well aware of what's coming across. He must have looked like a monster because wow. the baskets would have flopped a bit on his sides as if he were, you know, like as if they were wings. He has the gas mask on, and he's making this line for his trainer who happens to be behind the line where they need to find out what they need to do to help, you know, the, the officers need to know what they need to do to help rescue these men. So Satan makes it. And of course, he's been fired on all the way across, but it gets all the way over there. The reason for the two carrier pigeons in the baskets was because the men on the receiving end were to write their message out, and it was supposed to be the same message with to be carried by each pigeon. And they were going to release the pigeons at the exact same time. And the military had figured out, well, they're probably going to bring down one of those pigeons, but they won't bring down both. So... Satan gets back there, the pigeons are given the message, Satan stays behind with, with the men, and the pigeons are sent up into the air on their route to their destination, and indeed one pigeon is brought down, but the other one makes it all the way to it, and they were able to get the message in, and you know the battle proceeded according to what needed to be done at that point, and the men were, were rescued. So the story, and you just think about the bravery of everybody involved in a circumstance like that, and the amount of training involved, and it's really pretty amazing. It's now, incredible. I have to continue by saying all of these dogs were being used in Europe. The Americans had a few dogs along with a few units, but they were really just mascot dogs, dogs that had been snuck over and, you know, kept with the men and nobody kind of objected. And they did serve a purpose. They were good sentry dogs. And so it certainly wasn't a waste to have them, but nobody had trained them. So we get to World War II and good old United States, we have clearly learned absolutely nothing because we have done nothing to prepare a canine corps. So it was a woman named Aileen Erlinger, who of all things was a, you know, a society woman and a poodle breeder, who says to her friends, 
we have to build a canine corps. So she gets the American Kennel Club on board, and she gets a writer at the New York Sun to participate with her to bang the drum for the news that she wants to spread, and she gets the government okay. But she puts out the word that people need to donate their pets in order to build our canine corps. Now, when I tell people that, I mean, today, you know, we have a volunteer army. Most people we know don't go into the service. It's one of those things like it's only with great reluctance that we send people off into the military. But in those days, brothers, fathers, uncles, cousins all wanted to go to protect the freedom of our country and, and, you know, what they felt like the government wanted them to do. And as additional proof of that, they cared so much that they were willing to donate their pets. Now, they have 40,000 pets donated to this cause. The minimum weight was supposed to be about 50 pounds, so they weren't taking just anything, but they didn't specify too much on age or or breed or anything like that. They take the 40,000 dogs, they winnow it down to about 10,000 that they think that they can work with. And most of the dogs, I mean, the dogs that weren't used were sent back to their families. There were a few stories that occurred where somebody would drop their dog off and one gentleman went home and his wife fainted when he got home when she found out her dog had been donated. So he did call the center and ask if he could pick his dog back up. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And, And he got his dog back. But for the most part... Our entire World War II canine court was made up of people's pets. They assigned all the best trainers, whether they were working with specific kennels or whether they were Hollywood dog trainers or whatever, and set them up in camps all across the country. You know, there was one in a tropical, you know, like the New Orleans area where it would be more like a tropical climate for fighting in the Pacific. So they sort of tried to mimic the conditions that the dogs might be in set about training these dogs, and indeed, they went off and were definitely an asset in the process. Now, I do have to have one postscript because poor Aileen Erlinger was breeder of poodles. The poodles proved to be great sentry dogs, and they were very helpful, you know, in terms of guarding, manufacturing plants, and that sort of thing here in this country. But it was written that they really were no good to send to Europe because of their coats. Because they got matted, they got wet, and they were just a pain in the neck to take care of. So yeah. those dogs got to stay stateside. <laughs> but Aileen Erlinger certainly had a good idea when she got going with this plan. And, of course, we yeah. now have a regular system for canine Thank corps. Thank goodness. Yes. yes. Well, Thank goodness. That's amazing. Well, that I did not realize that. So, wow. Thank you for sharing that historical information with us. Well, we are going to take just a quick break and hear some important messages from our sponsors. And then we're going to come back and continue talking with Kate Kelly because I know she has a lot more stories to share with us. So come right back after these quick messages. We'll be right back right after these messages. Stay tuned. Molly, here's your dinner. (laughs) Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. 
There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. We're visiting today with author and historian and extreme dog lover, Kate Kelly. And Kate, you were just sharing some really interesting stories with us before the break. But I I do want to ask you about another book that you wrote, You Lucky Dog, about homeless dogs that survived and eventually thrived to become local or national celebrities. How did some of those dogs make it to become celebrities? Well, you know, a good number of the dogs that have gone on to be Hollywood movie star dogs have actually come from shelters. Today, I had, I'd never written about Old Yeller, despite the fact that I had been doing this for a couple of years. And so I featured Old Yeller, and he came from a shelter in Van Nuys, California. He was just this floppy, kind of goofy-looking dog, and the Weatherwax family is one of the, they're the ones who have trained all the Lassie dogs. And someone was there, and they thought the Weatherwaxes would like this dog, so... Frank Weatherwax went down to the shelter, and in that time, you had to pay $3 to get a dog out of the pound, and he paid $3 for this dog, whose name was Spike, and they brought him back and trained him, and, and he was the dog known as Old Yeller, and the funny part about him was, you know, in Old Yeller, his claim to fame in the movie is that he protects the family from all sorts of different threats. And when he first went in for an audition at Disney, everybody thought, you're kidding me. This dog is way too friendly to ever be vicious. And so Weatherwax, you know, and he he was just, he just sounds like a love of a dog. Just one of the, I think, you know, he was like whistle, you know, that kind of look and that sort of thing. And so he, you know, comes in and he's all friendly and everything. And then when Frank Weatherwax does all the ordering around about what he has to do, you know, he becomes that vicious dog protecting the family from, you know, the bear or the outside threat that is approaching them. So, so it, it was all in the training in that sense. And there were, Benji was a, a shelter dog and they did a new Benji movie maybe five or six years ago and they again repeated a shelter hunt for a, a new Benji, partly as a publicity ploy. But it's a great reminder that there are wonderful, wonderful sometimes pedigreed dogs at these shelters, but also just wonderful mixed breed dogs that make wonderful pets or could be movie stars. And I'm pretty sure one of my dogs is supposed to be a movie star. (laughs) He just hasn't been (laughs) discovered. (laughs) Well, exactly. I was going to say Whistle is convinced that he is. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Well, I love that title, You Lucky Dog. I love that. That's awesome. (laughs) Well, and the other thing about, you know, earlier, one of the favorite dog stories in there was a, a dog named Bum who was on a ship and he he got to, I guess he was coming down the coast of California and he got to San Diego and got off. Now, if you were going by San Diego, what would you do? You would get off. (laughs) And he just made the town his home. Now, this was the late 1800s, but 
he would go from restaurant to restaurant, and you know, people would try to take him home with them, and he didn't want to. He wanted to be a, a dog of the town, and they really watched out for him, and they fed him. And you know, there was a day before leash laws and all the limitations, where you know, where a dog could actually have a an independent personality and do just fine. <laughs> well, and I love that you've also written about dogs that kept the telephone lines open on Mount Rainier. Exactly. And that's what, <laughs> and of course, I originally wrote about sled dogs when talking about, you know, everybody focuses on the running of the Iditarod in the, each winter when there's publicity around it. But the Iditarod has a little bit to do with the whole story about the medicine for the children. But the Iditarod is really about the importance of dogs in opening up an area like Alaska, because up until the 1960s, when they had invented those jet ski things, they really didn't have a good, reliable way for getting around a place like Alaska without using sled dogs. So it was actually a very, very important part of our country's history. There's a a story in 1904, their mail carrier and a sled dog were hired to do the mail route. And I know it was a typo, but it was supposed to be making something like $5,000 a year. And I know it must have been like $500 a year (laughs) in the newspaper. But it was one of those things where the sled dog was very important. and, And the Rainier story was certainly a good example. The thing with the Rainier thing that I didn't totally understand was that was a ski resort. So it's like if <laughs> the telephone lines were down, I wasn't certain it was like a huge crisis that they didn't have the connection. But it was certainly a creative, if they were going to use the ski resort during the winter months, it was certainly the best way to be able to keep those lines open because it was the only way to get into the area at that time. Absolutely. Well, and I also want to thank you so much for what you've written about International Assistance Dog week, which we really appreciate you writing about that and sharing information. And we love the story that you did this year on Lisa Loftus, the um, school teacher in Albuquerque and her hearing dog. And you know, those stories are just so wonderful. I mean, I I did you on Whistle last year and that sort of thing. And Lisa's story, I mean, it is so important that these dogs be acknowledged for the work that they're doing and that people understand that they that the law is that they can be part of the workplace and that they are to be given permission to go into movie theaters and on subways or you know wherever it is that the person needs to go. So I think the more we do to spread the word on that and to to remind people that the dog isn't just for people who are visually impaired, that there are many many other functions that they can serve it is truly important. Yes. Well, and you sharing information through your work is just so helpful. And that's really what makes a difference so that we can have systemic change is when people are seeing it and hearing about it in all different aspects of their life. And it just makes it so much more real and easy to understand that, yes, just like you said, these dogs are, they're out in our communities and in our workplaces, making people like me be able to get out and do the things that we so want to do. So I just love that you write about that. And I have to tell you that your dog days of summer, that's so funny because when I founded International Assistance Dog Week and I was trying to think of when should we celebrate that every year, it was the dog days of summer that came to my mind. And so that's why I chose August for that. So we were on the same wavelength, Kate. So we've all tied into the same thing and we'll be together again next 
summer, there is absolutely, and that job webinar that you sponsored was absolutely brilliant because it was so filled with information. It was just great. Oh, good. Well, yes, and, and Kate, for our listeners, is talking about the Job Accommodation Network that we were able to do a free webinar, and that will be available so that people can access it for employers and human resource leaders so that, that they can know how to work with someone appropriately who needs an assistance dog at work. So, yeah, it's awesome. So, tell us, Kate, what are you working on now? What's your next project? You know, General George Custer was a huge dog lover, and he will be my featured series of dogs on Thursday. He would sometimes have 80 dogs, and the fellow assigned to help him with the animal care said the problem with George Custer was he was such a softy that he would decide to breed his dogs because it would be interesting to do pedigreed hunting dogs, which is what he mainly had, but then he wouldn't ever let anybody take them. <laughs> he kept them all with him. So his group just grew and grew, and the touching part of that story is just that going into Little Bighorn, he tried to send the dogs back home with Libby, and they didn't want her. They wanted to go with him. But he did get the animal handler to hold them away from the fighting. So they did not actually accompany him onto the battlefield. But we also don't have any documentation as to what happened to them. So they probably got back to Fort Abraham Lincoln, but you just, we don't have any written information on it. But at least they didn't go and, and you know, see everything that happened at the, on the battlefield. Yeah. What an interesting topic. How in the world did you decide to write about General George Custer and find out about his love of dogs, Kate? You know, if you keep looking, there are a lot of pictures with him, uh, you know, with dogs. And so it finally occurred to me, oh, my gosh, how have I not covered this? And then when you start looking for information, there is actually quite a bit. Before the summer is over, I'll also, I'm also doing a feature on the dogs of the Titanic, which is like, I guess that wasn't a good thing to say towards the end of the series, but it is one of those things like people don't think of the fact that those were wealthy people on that ship and they were likely traveling with their pets and they were. But it's important that we know that, you know, it's important that we know kind of what the full scope and the full look of the community was at that time. Yes, because dogs are with us in our everyday life, and it's been that way for quite some time. So, yeah, you could think of anything historically and currently, and there's usually a dog present. Exactly. And I have one final story that I, I will end with, which is more uplifting, about a German shepherd who was written about in the 1920s in the New York Times because they documented that he could answer to 400 different commands. And now Whistle's number is... It's over 100 for Whistle. Oh, over 100. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, when I finished the research on this, I, I think what this dog knew was... 400 words. But of course, that's kind of comparable to what that dog genius is that the professor has been working with. Yes. It just shows the mental capability of these animals and the fact that I'm trying to teach my dog to recognize one of his toys. (laughs) That's my starting point. (laughs) But it is one of those things that they are just capable of so much more than we sometimes expect of them. And a dog like Whistle, of course, is performing it at maximum level in just the way that he should and for all the reasons he should, too. Yeah, well, it's just, I'm blown away every day by the dogs and by Whistle and and all of my assistance dogs that I've had of what they do for us. And, you know, I really wonder about how many words they really know because 
it is just incredible, their attentiveness and their immediate response. You know, even though Whistle is retiring now and he's certainly slowing down, but he is still on duty with me right now, even though he doesn't have his backpack on, but in his mind, he's always alert. And all of my dogs have been that way until they they left this world. So it is incredible what dogs do for us and what they have done for us for for thousands of years. So are you taking a new dog soon? I am on the waiting list, but okay. it takes a while. You know, there yeah. aren't enough enough of these dogs around. So I'm on a waiting list, which could be about a year, I've been told. So I'm just keeping my fingers crossed. And every time the phone rings, I'm trying to get to it really quickly because I'm hoping yeah. it's them calling me to tell me that, that my assistant's dog is on the way. But until then, Whistle is still on duty. Perfect. Yeah, and he doesn't mind at all. He's no, okay he with that. Yeah. Yes. Well, Kate, I can't thank you enough for being with us today and sharing all of your wonderful stories and information that you're gathering. And we love reading your blog and, and all of your writing. And tell our listeners, how can they follow you, Kate? What's the best way? Well, if they go to the website, americacomesalive.com, They can sign up to get the dog stories sent to them during the summer. And it also has all my information about Twitter and Facebook and that sort of thing. So really, my website is the best place to find me, americacomesalive.com. Perfect. Well, you will have to come back and tell us more stories about General Custer and the dogs of the Titanic. We look forward to hearing about all of your, your future work, Kate. I appreciate that. And thank you so much for having me. It's a total pleasure. And thank you, our listeners, for being with us today. We love hearing from you. So please keep those emails coming. You can email Whistle and myself at Marcy, M-A-R-C-I-E, at PetLifeRadio.com. And you can also follow us at WorkingLikeDogs.com and on Facebook and Twitter. So we look forward to hearing from you, and we look forward to being with you again soon. Take good care. Let's Talk Pets. Every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.